All right, welcome to all of you. Uh, greetings to our, our West Campus and our Traditions venue and our Zoe's Campus. Uh, glad all of you are here. Uh, when I was in college, I remember how uh, the most stressful time of the semester was obviously finals week, right? Every test was like worth 60% of your grade or something. I mean, talk about pressure. Um, during that week, um, we used to do this thing in my fraternity where we'd call it the 10 o'clock scream. And so everyone would go out of their room at 10 o'clock at night and just scream for about 30 seconds just to get out our frustrations. You know, finals week is that moment where you, where you have to show whether or not you've learned anything. Well, today we're, um, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture in which a certain group of people are experiencing final exams, and we're going to see whether or not they've learned anything. If you have your Bible or your iPad or whatever, please turn to Genesis 43. We're in the midst of a study of the life of Joseph. Joseph was an arrogant, spoiled teenager. His brothers were jealous, bitter, calloused men. They sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. He was then falsely accused of rape got thrown into prison, but, but all the while he's growing in his faith and his maturity. Eventually, God opens a door for Joseph to interpret the king's dream, and suddenly he is second in command in Egypt, overseeing the storing of food for seven years, and then the managing of the food in the famine that was predicted in Pharaoh's dream. So through all this adversity, Joseph has become this godly man filled with wisdom and integrity. But what about his brothers? Are they growing spiritually? One of the best ways to tell is to give them an exam, a test, which is exactly what we see happening in the passage that we're looking at today. This exam actually started last week with kind of a midterm, um, but now it's finals week. The brothers are about to take a final exam, and Joseph is the one administering the test, but they don't know it's him yet. So what's the focus of this exam? In a word, maturity, spiritual maturity. In this passage, Joseph is trying to discern whether or not any real change has happened in the hearts of his brothers over these many years. Now, what we need to realize is that God is interested in the same thing for us. God wants us to grow spiritually. His agenda for us is to become more like his son Jesus. And the same question arises for us as we look at our lives over the course of several years or the past several months. Is growth happening? Are we any different today than we were a, than we were a year ago, or three years ago, or five years ago? Are we growing in the things that matter to God? Well, in this final exam, there are three sections, three particular topics, each one of which provide one measurement for maturity, to measure whether or not we're growing spiritually. So let's, let's dive in here. Last week we saw how because of the famine, Jacob tells his sons to go get grain in Egypt. And so they go and they end up in front of Joseph, who's in charge of the entire grain distribution project. But they don't know it's him. He immediately recognizes them, but he doesn't reveal his identity. And so he begins to ask about their family. And they tell them that their father is still living and that there is a younger son at home. Now, at this point, Joseph begins to test them. He accuses them, first of all, of being spies. Then he says, I won't believe you until you go home and get your younger brother and bring him back. And until then, I'm going to keep one of you here. So he keeps Simeon in prison, and he sends the brothers back with grain. But he does something else that freaks them out. 
In each of their bags of grain, he secretly returns the silver that they paid for the grain. So he's giving them the grain for free, but they don't know that until they get home. And they unload the grain and they discover this silver. They don't know what it means. Now Jacob hears the story. He hears what happened to them and he says, no way, you are not taking Benjamin. There is no way you're taking Benjamin. I've already lost one son. I'm not going to lose another. I'm not doing this again. So for two years, they do nothing. When they start getting low on food, Jacob relents and says, okay, go get food, take Benjamin. So they do. That's where we've ended last week and that's where the passage today picks up. Verse 15, so the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. Verse 19, so they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. Okay, so it's here that we see the first part of this maturity exam. This is section number one. What's being tested here has to do with the issue of greed. The issue of greed. The brothers had paid for the grain they received, but then Joseph put the money back in their bags, so they got everything for free. So what would they do with that extra silver? Would they cling to it, keeping it for themselves? Now, we know what they would have done years earlier because of what happened years before. You may remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi killed all the men in a community because one of them had raped their sister. So what did the other brothers do? They go in after Simeon and Levi have done all that nasty stuff. They go in and they loot the city. They take all the wealth for themselves as plunder. Plunder. I mean, their family was already well off. Jacob had done quite well working for his father-in-law, Laban. So this was not about need. This was about greed. Taking advantage of a situation and using it to pad your own pocket. Greed is that, that more monster inside each one of us that's never content with the amount of money or possessions we have right now. Someone once asked the multi-millionaire John Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he immediately answered, just a little bit more. That's the human heart. You don't have to be a multi-millionaire to know that, that, that that's how the human heart operates. We are never content with what we have. We always want a little bit more. That's greed. And it's never satisfied. This is a huge issue, spiritually speaking. When we're talking about spiritual maturity, this is a huge issue. This is a mark of maturity. How do we handle money? How, how much of our hearts are ruled by greed? You know, Jesus gave, he gave a number of commands, but he gave one of the strongest warnings to us in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, one of his strongest warnings. Here it is. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Watch out, he says. Money is going after your heart. It's going after your heart. It is going to try and convince you that real life is found in having more stuff 
Oh, if I just had, was paid more, if we just lived in this house, you know, then life would be great. It's a lie. It's a lie that it's never satisfied. So the test of maturity is this. What do we do when financial blessings come our way? What do we do with the, the provision that God gives? Let's see how the brothers do. Whereas greed had ruled their life in the past, where they saw that, what do they do this time when, they, when, they have, when they've been given silver that they didn't deserve? They bring it back, right? Plus, we read, plus they brought more silver to pay for the added grain that they would need. So they are, they are no longer ruled by greed, by taking and keeping and holding on to stuff. Now, I realize their motives are all over the map on this, but something different is happening in their hearts here. Generosity seems to be working in their hearts at an increased level, and that's a significant thing, spiritually speaking. It's very significant. What about you and me? If generosity is a mark of maturity, this freedom from greed, if that's a mark of maturity, how are we doing? How are we doing? Here, here's the, here's the ex final exam question. As life progresses, as your life progresses, as my life progresses, are we growing in our generosity? Or are we growing in our greed? What, what's the trajectory of our heart? What's the trajectory of our life? Are we more generous today than we were five years ago? Or a year ago? Or three years ago? Are we more generous than we were then? Now, these are hard questions to answer because usually we, we deceive ourselves. Statistics reveal um, that, that the more money people make, the less generous they become. Statistics show that. The more money people make, the less generous they become. In other words, they give away a smaller percentage of their income. That's telling. That reveals a lot about the human heart. This is a huge test for us. What, what are we doing with the financial provision we've been given? And, you know, statistics will tell you that the average Christian in America gives 2.7% of their income away. And that's just right at the national average. That's no different than the world, than the rest, than, than everyone else. Something's wrong with that picture. What are we doing with the financial provision we've been given? Well, what, let me ask you this way. What is our instinctive response when, when that income increases in some way, there's a salary, we have a salary increase or a bonus or a, a, our business has a great year or maybe we receive, we receive some inheritance. Those things are all a test. They're a test. How do we handle those blessings? With greed or generosity? It's a test of maturity, a test of spiritual maturity. <clears throat> Second test occurs in the next section of this passage, and it has to do with the issue of jealousy. Jealousy. The brothers are invited into Joseph's home to eat dinner. They still don't know who it is. He knows them. He invites them into his home to eat dinner. He asks about their father, and then he sees Benjamin for the first time in years, 22 years. He sees Benjamin, the youngest brother. And he is so overcome by emotion that he has to leave the room to weep. When he comes back, he orders dinner to be, <clears throat> to be served. Verse 33. 
The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. They don't know what's happening here, but they're all seated in order. Um, While portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. There's the test. Benjamin, the youngest son, is given five times the amount of food that the others are given. This is very significant, and it is very intentional on Joseph's part. He is testing them. See, remember back in Genesis 37, what the brothers struggled with more than anything else. What they struggled with? Jealousy. They were jealous of the way their father... Jacob treated Joseph. They were jealous of the ornamented coat that Jacob had given to Joseph. They were jealous of Joseph's dreams, and their jealousy led them to a hatred of Joseph. So now here they are, 22 years later, here they are with Benjamin, the youngest brother, who is now the one that Jacob dotes upon. Because he, as we talked about last week, he, like Joseph, was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. And so, so they are all seated at the table. They're all seated at the table, being served food. And Joseph sees to it that Benjamin gets five times as much as anyone else. Right in front of the brothers' faces, the youngest brother receives way more than they do. He's, it's, this is a test. So how will they respond? Will they hate him? Will they grumble and complain? Verse 34, so they feasted and drank freely with him. (laughs) They passed this test with flying colors. A plus, there is no hint of jealousy or animosity toward Benjamin, even though Jacob clearly favored Benjamin. But now something is different. Something is different. The brothers are maturing. They they are no longer ruled by jealousy. This is another very significant mark of maturity in our lives. How do we respond when a friend or a coworker experiences a blessing that we don't? They get the job promotion. They get pregnant when we're trying to. They get a boyfriend or they get married. Their child gets a full-ride scholarship. They get a new house or a new car that's way nicer than ours. How do we respond to that? Do we become envious? Do we become less content with what we have? Often this jealous response is fed by our own feelings of shame and self-hatred. M- many of us view life through what I, what I refer to as the am I okay lens. We look at life through the am I okay lens. We are constantly measuring our value compared to others. So when we're successful, we feel good about ourselves. We're okay. Must be, you know, we're, we're, because it means we're okay if we're successful, right? But what happens when someone else around us, around us, what happens when they succeed? If we're looking through the am I okay lens, their success will immediately be a threat to us. Their success will immediately be interpreted by us as our personal failure or inadequacy. We're now measuring up. We feel bad about ourselves. We we feel jealous of what they have. See, whether we realize or not, we are constantly, 
comparing ourselves. And this is a huge struggle for me, personally. When I'm around other pastors, and I, I, I'm not the only one with other pastors, I think many do this, but when, I, when I'm around other pastors, I often look at them through this, am I okay, lens. Comparing myself. When I see someone who I deem is, is more gifted than me or more successful than me, in my heart, I conclude, I'm not okay. I need to do more. I need to be a different personality or whatever. I need to be different. And all of this is rooted in jealousy. Not being okay with who God has made me to be. I was doing some discipleship with some men um, recently and we started talking about this tendency to view life through this lens of self-consciousness. It's a result of Genesis 3, it's the fall. We, we just view life through this self-consciousness. They hid themselves. They knew they were naked and they hid themselves. Adam and Eve, right? It was suddenly they had self-consciousness where they didn't before. Wouldn't it be cool? You know, what, what would that be like? So we were talking about that and, and, and someone in the group said, wouldn't it be amazing to live a full day without this need to constantly measure and compare ourselves to others? I mean, that would be amazing. Can you imagine the joy and freedom of that, of being able to genuinely celebrate a friend's blessings without having to compare that blessing to our state in life and then to use that to somehow measure our own value or worth? One of the marks of maturity is how we handle the blessings of others around us. Well, there's one more test that Joseph administers and it's the culmination, really, of the final two. This final test has to do with the issue of self-absorption. Self-absorption. A me-first attitude. Living a life that's all about me. My needs, my agenda, my desires, and everyone else takes a back seat to, to my needs. For years, Joseph's brothers had lived with that mindset. It culminated in the brutal and callous selling of Joseph into slavery some 20 plus years earlier. They just wanted to get rid of him. He was a pain in the rear. They didn't, they didn't like being around him. You know, he, he, he was in the way of them experiencing life as they wanted it to be, so they just got rid of him. Total self-centered response. They didn't care about Joseph's well-being. They didn't care about their father's grief. They didn't care about how this would impact the family. It was all about them getting what they wanted to make life easier for themselves. Me first. That was the past. That's how they lived in the past. Now, no doubt, Joseph remembers that treatment. He had been the victim of that me first attitude. He knew how devastating this attitude is in the human heart. So he wanted to know if anything in their hearts had changed. So he sets up the final test. Genesis 44 verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the, mouth, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? 
Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Okay, it's fairly obvious what Joseph is doing. He is creating a scenario very similar to what he experienced years earlier, only now Benjamin is in the vulnerable position. Falsely accused of stealing, Benjamin is is on his own and is in trouble. What will the brothers do? Will they turn their face away from Benjamin in in his moment of need and let him rot in prison somewhere like they did with Joseph? Will will they let their father experience another grief like they did in Joseph's situation, losing another son? What will they do now when they're facing a similar situation to what happened years before? So they arrive in the city. They, They turn around, they arrive in the city, and they stand before Joseph, and he says to them, what is this you have done? You have stolen my own silver cup. And so at this point, Judah, Judah steps up. This is significant. Even though Judah is not the oldest brother, he has long functioned this way in the family. In fact, it was Judah who suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery. So now Judah comes forward to speak on behalf of all his brothers. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Now, this this is really amazing what's happening here. This this would have been the perfect opportunity for Judah to cover his own rear end, right? And throw Benjamin under the bus. It wasn't in my sack. It's his, right? I mean, pointing a finger. That would have been the expected response. Me first. It's his problem, not mine. But no, Judah speaks for all the brothers. They are all in this together. He says, we are now my Lord's slaves. We are now my Lord's slaves. We, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. See, they're not abandoning Benjamin. They are willing to go to jail in solidarity with him. And so Joseph takes it even farther. Verse 17, but Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. See, Joseph is giving them an out. That's what he's doing. He's giving them an opportunity to see if they take it. He he wants to see what's really in their hearts. If given a chance to bolt and save their own skins, what will they choose to do? So again, Judah speaks. Now remember, this is Judah, who years before suggested selling Joseph into slavery and who didn't care when Joseph was crying out for help. He instead was just having lunch with the other brothers. This is Judah who in chapter 38 slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and then wanted her burned at the stake for sexual immorality. I mean, this is Jude. This is that Judah. Verse 18, 
Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Verse 27, your servant, my father, said to us, so Jacob said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. This is an amazing moment. Judah is moved with compassion for his dad, Jacob. Even though his father has favored other sons, Judah is still filled with compassion. See, com compassion is the opposite of a me-first attitude. Compassion moves us to feel what others are feeling and to act on that, to do something on their behalf. So Judah's compassion here moves him to a particular course of action. He volunteers to take Benjamin's place. Benjamin was the guilty one, at least on the surface, and yet Judah was willing to become a slave and let Benjamin go free. He was willing to lay his life down for his brother and his father. I mean, what an amazing transformation we are seeing here. Judah is a completely different man. He was willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of someone else. Now, we could, we could end this message right here by saying, because Judah was willing to lay down his life for others, you need to do the same. End of message. And that, that may be true, but it doesn't really help us put this into practice. So what can enable us to live this way as it relates to our struggle with greed or our struggle with jealousy or our struggle with self-centeredness? What can enable us to grow and mature in these very significant areas? Here's what. We must realize that Judah's willingness to sacrifice points to another, more significant sacrifice. A descendant of Judah named Jesus was willing to give his life as a ransom for our lives. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty we should have paid, right? We deserved death and separation from God. But Jesus experienced that on the cross, giving his life on our behalf, in our place. See, that's the gospel. And that gospel 
makes all the difference in terms of how we can experience real change in our lives. Well, let me explain. Let's say we struggle with greed, with this tendency to cling to things and, 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 and to not be generous. So how do we go about changing our behavior in this particular area? Well, what a lot of people do is just adopt a trying harder strategy. I'm going to try harder to be a more generous person. But that won't work because it doesn't change our hearts. It, it doesn't change our hearts. But here's what will work. When we open our heart afresh to the truth that Jesus gave his all for us and that the fullness of his kingdom is already ours, that's what he says. When we open our heart afresh to those truths, we no longer have to cling to our stuff. We no longer have to cling to our money. We are free to give, to live in the joy of, of loving him and trusting him. Or let's say we struggle with jealousy. We are constantly looking at the world through this am I okay lens. Constantly trying to validate our worth by comparing ourselves to other people. So how do we stop that? Trust me, trying harder does not work, okay? Trying harder is not going to work. The only thing, and, and self-help seminars and all that stuff, is not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is to have that question, am I okay, have that question answered by Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to help us, is to have that am I okay question answered by Jesus, because you see, when we place our trust in him, we at that moment are completely justified. That's the Bible word. We are completely accepted by him. Our sins are forgiven completely. We are his beloved sons and daughters. So to continually open our heart to that reality enables us to stop comparing ourselves and to stop measuring our value based upon other people. It enables us to experience the joy and freedom of being able to actually celebrate other people's successes without, without that success saying anything about us. The gospel enables us to do that. So when I meet with other pastors and I begin to feel that jealous, I'm not okay thing, I can look to Jesus in that moment or when I'm processing it later, I can look to him and I can just remember, you know, Lord, your, your love and grace are more significant. That's what communicates to me my value. It's what you did for me. And I, I am free to be who you created me to. You didn't create me to be like him or him or her or whatever. You didn't create me to be like anyone else. And so thank you, Lord, that I can just be who you created me and that's okay. You see, I'm trying to get the gospel deeper in my experience, in my heart, when jealousy surfaces. And finally, what about our struggle with self-absorption, with self-centeredness? I mean, this me-first attitude. We, we all know that trying harder isn't going to help us fix this. It's not. But what will help us is to fix our eyes on the one who gave his life for us. Right? to fix our eyes on Jesus who gave his life for us, when we know that kind of sacrificial love, we suddenly have access to, to resources through the Holy Spirit, the same resources that empowered Jesus to do what he did. 
We, we have access to resources to love others the same way he did because the spirit of Jesus lives in us. So this means in our marriage, at school, in our work, Jesus enables us to truly lay down our, our agendas and our desires because ultimately our desires are met in him. Not in our spouse and not in our employee or, or whatever. They're met in him, which frees us to lay down our lives and our agendas. So you see, we really can experience spiritual growth in our lives in the areas that we've looked at today. But that happens not by motivational pep talks and by promises to do better. No, no, no. It happens as we increasingly fix our eyes on Jesus. Falling more deeply in love with him and trusting him with all that we are. You see, the good news of the gospel continually changes us. It continually changes. The gospel is not just the way into a relationship with you. Oh yeah, 20 years ago, I received the gospel. Now I've moved on from that. No, we haven't graduated from gospel class. The gospel is the means. It's the means by which we experience the change that we long for. The transformation that we long for. Not by trying harder, but by letting our hearts be captured by this incredible savior who is ours. That's how change happens in all of our lives. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be uh, pressing these truths into our hearts where, where change really happens? In these moments, I think th th these are the most significant moments it's our response to what we've heard. So let me just, a couple of specific responses here. There are some of you here perhaps, let me just ask you, have you received this Savior who gave his life for you? That's the gospel. It's not about you going to church and being a nice person and trying to make yourself better so God will finally accept you. No, it's about receiving Jesus who died on the cross for you. Because you need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. We don't need more rules to follow. And some of you here are sitting here thinking, that's what I want, that's what I need. I want a relationship with Jesus. Let me, and, and this is, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can enter into this relationship with him. So if this is the desire of your heart, just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy and I'm not. No matter how hard I try, I fall short of your glory because of my sin and my self-centeredness and my jealousy and my greed. And there's nothing I can do to bridge that gap. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. And I choose right now to place my trust in you alone, Jesus. I bring my whole self and I place all of me on your shoulders. I ask you to forgive my sin, past, present, and even the sins I haven't committed yet. Forgive all of it and adopt me right now as your child forever. Jesus, I invite you to live in me and change me from the inside out. God, thank you for anyone who prayed that prayer. Thank you that you heard that prayer. 
and that you've answered, that you've come to live in them and forgiven their sins. Help them grow in that relationship. Help them grow in the gospel. Now, another response here, another invitation. For those of you who have received Jesus, let me just ask you, what difference does the gospel make in your heart and life today? Do you struggle with greed? What would it look like for you right now to open your heart to the Savior who gave his all for you and who says, don't worry about what you eat or drink. My kingdom is yours. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What would it look like for you to open your heart right now to that Savior who gave his all for you? And let's just do that in the quiet of your heart. Just open your heart afresh to Jesus. And what about those here? Do do you struggle with jealousy? Do you kind of view the world through the am I okay lens and every other person's success or blessing causes you to feel less good about yourself? What, what, What would it look like for you to open your heart afresh to the Savior who loves you and accepts you where you don't have to prove your worth by comparing yourself to others what would that look like right now to let that truth of the gospel fill your heart you are who he created you to be be who he created you to be you are loved by him Just open your heart to that truth right now. And what about self-centeredness? Do you struggle with self-centeredness? I mean, who among us doesn't? In our marriage at our work, at school, in our relationships, what would it look like for us to open our hearts afresh to this Savior who laid down his life for us and he calls us to do the same, to take up your cross? That in doing that, in losing our lives, we actually find life. That's the Savior we're following. So what would that look like right now just to open your heart afresh to that Savior and to lay your whole self at his feet, saying, I'm your servant, Lord. I'm yours. Let's just do that in the quiet of your heart. Father, thank you that the gospel is not just something we embraced five years ago or 10 years ago or maybe recently, whatever. 
thank you that the gospel is not just a one-time thing. Thank you that the gospel is your means of changing us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that the gospel would continually be changing us, transforming us, growing us, that the gospel would be changing our hearts on a moment-by-moment basis as we, as the cross of Christ, the work of Jesus becomes bigger and bigger in our hearts. That's what we want, the gospel bigger in our hearts. So we pray for that. Holy Spirit, do that work in us. We have a a cool opportunity right now just to embrace afresh the wonder of the gospel through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member here to partake or a partner here. If, If you've placed your trust in Jesus, maybe you just did two minutes ago, if you've placed your trust in Christ, we invite you to partake. So here's how this, here's how this is going to work. Ushers, if you want to kind of make your way up right now, in just a moment, the ushers are going to pass around the, the elements. And uh, just so we, we've done this for a couple months now, um, the, the cups, there are two cups stacked on top of each other. When it comes by, take both of those out. So you have two cups, they're stacked on top. Take both of those out. One has the bread and one has the juice. And then we will partake together. So hang on just a sec. Don't pass it out yet. Hang on. I want to I want to pray for this, um, and then we'll we'll distribute the elements. Take one cup, um, the two cups stacked on top. Take that and hold on to it, and then we will partake together. I'll come back up and we'll partake of the bread and the juice together. So, thank you, Jesus. Even now in these moments, as we are passing these elements, that our hearts would remain focused on what these represent. Your life given for us, and so thank you for that. Thank you, Lord. Okay, ushers, you can go ahead and distribute those.